Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all. Oh, Dan, Dan. Wait, are Dan, we live? Is this recording? Dan, oh, we're recording. Sorry, 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 my bad. <laughs> Mary, I was wondering, are we sick of 100% Christmas yet or is that still going? We are not sick at all, Dan. We are loving it. I did, I think I drove, last weekend I drove down to Dartmoor, back into London and back to Winchester, which is something like seven or eight hours of driving. And I had 100% Christmas the whole way. And I'm still not sick of it. <laughs> no, no, no repeats. It must have re- looped a few times over that. Surprisingly few repeats. But yes, there were. You can't really get away with no repeats. And, and you, you go with Mad. You're on radio, right? You're on Magic FM. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I go more the streaming route. But I found a playlist on Spotify that has seven days long, the playlist, before it repeats. Amazing. Um, which is not, not too bad. But you still do have some repeats on that one. I can put yeah. that in the show notes if anyone's interested. <laughs> Please do, because I will check out the show notes for that. <laughs> right, Mary. So remind us, what's the deal? Are you still are you still hosting this Christmas and cooking and all that all that jazz? Yeah. So so this was Plan A for last year. We are hosting eleven adults and three dogs, Woo-hoo. which is going to be quite a squeeze. And none of the dogs have met each other, and not all of the adults have met each other. So it'll be fine, you know. It's Christmas, so what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong, indeed? Now, cooking-wise, do you have your own like secret strategies and recipes for for turkey and stuff? Because I know everyone has their own little ways of doing it, don't they? What's your little What's your little tricks? So I would say we have quirks for turkey and roast potatoes are the, are the two oh, go main on, ones go on. yep. so so turkey this last year was the first year we did this and i probably mentioned it last year on the podcast we are barbecuing our turkey so we're brining it for a day Ooh. and then barbecuing and it's not just because there's not enough space in the oven to cook for 11 people with all the trimmings but it does help so meat goes on the barbecue and, and veggies in the oven for this year but yeah it worked really really well so i would recommend people give it a go call that a bit of an aussie christmas mate that's uh it feels like you could be on on bondi or something uh, with that kind of style i think so with slightly less sunshine but yeah okay wait so talk me through it so what you, you're saying you brine it for a day stick it in the barbecue for how long do you know dan that's not actually my area a few hours no i'm generally sous chef but that does mean i do the roast potatoes right gotcha so what and what's your top trick on those then you, you look down the jamie oliver school of thoughts i know that's a very popular uh, roast potato benchmark i think so i don't actually know what the jamie oliver recipe looks like although he does generally do good good recipes mine is parboil the, the potatoes and then bash them around with the lid on like properly shake it with butter and corn flour and then shove them in the oven with goose fat and they go so nice and crispy so yeah that's my that's my secret recipe which is just a word of mouth been passed down. So a bit of shaking and bashing and general violence, but coupled with corn flour and what would you say goose fat? Goose fat, yeah. So you melt the goose fat in the oven dish first. It's basically oil when you put the potatoes in. Nice. I've not heard of that, but um, yeah, hey, you all heard it here first. How about you, Dan? What, what recipes do you prefer? The main one that I've got to bring to the table, I guess, my wife, Jules, she does a pretty good broccoli recipe, actually. It's kind of in the oven. It's a bit controversial, but you cut them into little tiny florets. You put like quite a lot of garlic and a little bit of like chili um, flakes on them, mm. stick them in the oven. Oh, and some um, loads of olive oil and a bit yeah. of lemon. And you stick them in the oven for just about eight minutes just to soften them a little bit. That is pretty damn good. Nice. I would go with that on the broccoli front. Well, between us, we've kind of got a roast, a roast meal there. Got it now. Just need to double check your details on the turkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, just get, get, get those for us next time. Anyway, uh, so today we've got a really good episode on China, actually. I really enjoyed recording this. Um, got to ask all those questions on China that I've just been in my mind basically the whole year. And, and, and Chris was great at answering them. And then just to remind people, so next week we're doing just the two of us. And there's going to be a little wrap up of the year. We're going to 
be reflecting, I think, on some of the key stats, key people of the year and some of the key recommendation stuff. So looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Then we'll have a week off over Christmas and we'll be back in early January um, with a book review episode. It's how we started 2021 and and I thought it worked really well, actually. So the big reveal of the book we're going to be reading will be in next week's episode. And then we'll all have a, a, a week or so to to read the book over Christmas if we get bored of spending time with our families. Um, and then we'll be back to review that book um, in January. So yeah, looking forward to that series. Brilliant. Cool. All right. Well, um, got all that straightened out. So on with the episode. On with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Really looking forward to the conversation this week. We are talking about China. A lot of headlines around China this year, driving markets. And joining us for that conversation, delighted to welcome Chris Kushless, an emerging market sovereign analyst from T. Rowe Price. Chris, welcome. Hi, thank you. (laughs) Welcome, Chris. Before we kick off, could you give the listeners a sense of your role at T. Rowe Price, please? Sure. So as Dan said, I'm an emerging market sovereign analyst, which basically means I'm effectively a cross between an economist and a strategist who covers a range of Asian countries. And now I'm also doing broader EM strategy as well. So looking at the entire EM space as a whole. But my specialization in terms of country coverage is China. And that's what I've been covering for the last decade, as well as I said, a number of other Asian countries like Indonesia, Philippines, Sri Lanka, have covered places like India, Thailand, Malaysia in the past as well. Cool. Wow. Well, we've got a ton of questions for you, Chris, and all of that. But before we get into that, all that good stuff, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Well, definitely won't find on the CV the fact that I've played drums since childhood. And you started by banging on pots and pans in the kitchen to graduating to a full drum kit and playing a bit in a band as well in high school. Fantastic. I have to admit, I watched Love Actually as my sort of annual Christmas thing. So the little kid that suddenly decides to play the drums to impress the girl, I kind of, yeah, I was picturing the pain that parents must go through from children learning to play the drums. But yeah, Pots and Pans sounds like a good starting place. Absolutely. Well, the drummer is always in the back and never gets the attention they deserve. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. Well, moving on from that drum roll then for the first question. Sorry, that was bad. Couldn't resist. So, Chris, I mean, one place to start this, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they posed the slightly provocative question of saying, is 2021 the year when China became uninvestable? And I think what they were getting at there was a combination of the tech crackdown, the Evergrande debt issues and general kind of market human rights related headlines around all of that. Yeah. What does that all mean for China? and where, Where does it kind of leave us? So could you respond to that? Sure. So as you said, it's a pretty provocative question. And as you can expect, I'm going to say that it's still investable, but it's the year that China became a lot more complicated. I think when we went into the year, we were expecting a fairly nice, quiet year. 2020, they'd already, you know, well underway recovering from COVID, kind of expected them to sort of downshift on the stimulus policies, but not do so in a fairly gentle way because the rest of the world was still getting through the COVID crisis as well. Instead, what we got was quite a few surprises on the tech side, the tech regulatory crackdown, 
The Evergrande default is another interesting one. I think we can go into more detail there. But they did apply a slow, steady squeeze on the property sector throughout the year. And in a way, they telegraphed that that was coming well in advance. So we were prepared for that. And as you said, just the sort of geopolitical relations around China, you know, they turned south, you know, post 2017. And I think that just continued in 2021, just complicating our lives as investors. You know, what does that mean for China? It means I think you can still invest in China, but it definitely means you know, you have to think a lot harder about the amount of risk that you put into China. And you have to think a lot harder about the pricing of that risk as well. You know, should there be a China discount, like there is a discount in some other countries to take into account these risks? Doesn't mean they're uninvestable, though. And I suppose, so if China has become a more difficult place to invest, and, and you just referred to potentially sort of discounting the the opportunity, if you like, I suppose... Some investors might hear that statement and think, well, I'll just invest somewhere that's easy. But presumably, that's not necessarily your view. And and one of the reasons why that might not be your view is that China is clearly quite important in global markets. I wonder whether you could just give a, a very, very high level and brief history lesson in terms of the way that China has become so important in global markets. Yeah, it's a good question. So if you sort of zoom out historically and you look at the size of China's economy relative to, say, world GDP, Go back to 2000, China was about 2% of world GDP, 2% of world trade. It's now 15 plus percent or 15 to 20% of world GDP and world trade. And when you look at the dollar amount that they invest every year, that now exceeds the US. They're the largest single country in terms of dollar amount invested in the world. And so it's basically, it's an economy. It's about three quarters the size of the US in terms of total dollar amount of GDP, second largest in the world. If you don't count the EU as a single block, then it's third largest. And as a result, it's just, it's huge. And it's a big weight in the world economy. And it has particularly large influence over the other emerging markets, where trade with China can run up to 30, 40% of their trades, exports, imports, etc. So one area that I think it's worth also commenting on is that China's very well integrated into the world, sort of the goods trade side. They were actually growing or increasingly integrated into the world on the services side when tourism was quite easy or more active and Chinese tourists were heading everywhere across Southeast Asia and further afield. But on the financial market side, China has been much less integrated. And that's the legacy of the capital controls that they've had in place. The capital controls have worked both ways, both in terms of people being able to put money into China, but also in terms of Chinese taking money out of China. Those have been slowly coming down. And I think if you think about it from an economics point of view, there's good reason to be cautious at the pace at which you take them down. Countries that liberalize too fast can put themselves into danger or risk of a financial crisis. But I think they're doing it in a fairly measured way. And in the last two years, we've seen a pretty steady opening to Western financial investors on the ground in China, setting up offices in China, being able to take full control of their subsidiaries in China for the first time. Our company, for instance, has opened an office in Shanghai for the first time, one of several asset managers that are doing so. So I think that's another story that's sort of a new chapter of the story of China's global integration that's still being written and lots of potential there for that to develop. Yeah, because I guess one theme that, that's talked about a bit is that obviously China, if you look at the emerging market indices on the equity side and the fixed income side, I suppose, China's representation in those indices has increased a lot, which is what you'd expect. 
But it's often said, I think, that it still hasn't quite increased to the extent that it ought to have done, given the significance of China. Where would you be on that point? Yeah, so it's increasing more on the equity side. On the fixed income side, there's a couple major bond indices that have included it, the global aggregate at a 6% weight, the EM local bond index at a 10% weight. So that's still punching below its sort of GDP weight in the world and potentially its weight in terms of global financial assets. So I think you know, you know we've seen a ramp up there. I think it'll probably consolidate for a few years, but there's potential for it to go higher. On the equity side, though, it's become a much more meaningful part of the emerging markets index to the point where it's probably dominating the index. So that presents a different set of challenges as well. But yeah, I think as it continues to grow and as, as you continue to see more depth in the financial markets there build up, its weight in terms of representation probably will continue to go higher. And I suppose in the meantime, and perhaps this is particularly relevant on the debt side, if, as you just said, on the equity side, the, the things have opened up a bit more. Would you be recommending investors to think about ways of accessing exposure to China that isn't naturally available through those indices? potentially sort of almost synthetically or through a sort of third party type structure? Or actually, is it just a kind of wait till this stuff happens more naturally to your comments about opening up too quickly? Yeah, I think it's probably more about waiting till things open up more naturally. There's a couple of channels through which they've opened up, including the Equity Connect, which began several years ago, and the Bond Connect as well. That creates a much more seamless channel for investors to put money in and out of China. Otherwise, it's actually very difficult and you can't really do it. So, you know, there's still institutional restrictions or restraints on how you do it. There is an offshore dollar bond market largely traded out of Hong Kong. I think you can do things more freely there, but that comes with its own set of risks, right? You're taking on company corporate credit risk. You can also buy H shares based in Hong Kong as well on the equity side if you want. But as I said, that's a bit of a different animal and the, the arbitrage between the two isn't seamless. Yeah, and then we'll get to some of that in a second, hopefully, because I think it is important to unpack some of these different offshore shell company type access routes. I think that's a bit underappreciated. Just to round off on the sort of intro piece then, and in terms of the growth, people are probably familiar with the growth story over the last 10 years. But what about the slowdown of growth? Like it feels like every few years, people stick on their top 10 risks, China hard landing, China slowdown sort of thing. It's just that perennial thing that sort of might happen, but never seems to quite happen. You know, Do you see that as a natural thing that's sort of destined to happen? Or how would you how would you think about that? Yeah. So as you said, every two to three years, there seems to be a scare about China growth. I think if you take a step out, what's actually going on is that China's had a very big leverage cycle from about 2009 to 2016. Initially, they used that leverage to get through the GFC when exports were collapsing, but they found it difficult to get off the leverage cycle. 2017, they began a deleveraging campaign. That's lasted until 2020 when COVID broke out. And then there, the goal is basically to level off credit to GDP. It's not actually to reduce it outright. But when you look at historically what's happened to countries that do try and deleverage, everyone basically pays a price in growth to do it. It's not cost three. In many countries, they do it in a difficult way, which is they take it through a financial crisis and they take it up front in a very painful way. What China is doing because they have, I don't know, the luxury of capital controls, but they also have a more state-controlled or guided financial system, they can spread out the pain over time. And so what they're effectively doing is guiding growth down slowly over time and managing that process. So if you look at the growth rate since 2016, it's been coming down by about half a point a year. So it started around 8%. 
We're probably going to target five to five and a half percent next year. I think it's still slowly coming down. Where it stops, I'm not entirely sure. I think a lot of people are thinking that an economy that doesn't grow based on leverage or doesn't grow based on an overheated property market probably can still grow anywhere from three to five percent just based on technology upgrading, productivity continuing to catch up with living standards and the potential for consumption to take off as a motor of growth. Okay, so actually, this story that people feel, I don't at times suspicious of, is actually potentially a very well managed process that just takes a bit of time. Largely well-managed. I would say there's occasional stumbles, like any kind of process that you see. Sometimes it overshoots. I think in the property sector, we've probably had some temporary overshooting this year. And you know, policymakers also have to respond to feedback, and they don't know exactly like where the line is, where they're overshooting. But once they get that feedback, they do react, and they do step in to try and manage the process. And I think that's an important thing to understand about China. Yeah, so it's, it's one of those things where it's important to understand how China differs from a lot of the sort of UK, Europe, US markets where we're more familiar with there being these big crises that sort of wash everything out. Well, in the past anyway, big crises that wash everything out and then build back from there, whereas that's not the model to apply to China. Right, absolutely. And I think if you look at the history of financial crisis, largely they're set off because of liquidity crises. So maybe a solvency problem is building, but it's liquidity that triggers the crisis. I think in China's case, they have a lot more tools to manage the liquidity in the domestic financial system to prevent that accelerator effect from taking hold. Still means you're going to take pain through lower growth and restructuring, but you don't have that bank run fear. You don't have that sudden cutoff of liquidity fear that accelerates a financial crisis. Yeah. Is that ultimately why Evergrande was never going to be a layman, in other words? I think so. I mean, to me, when I hear about Evergrande being a layman, you would have to have a lot of policy mistakes compounding on each other to get there. And I just didn't think that both the incentive structure to allow those mistakes to happen or you know, the competence that would, in lack of competence that would allow those mistakes to happen. So again, I do suspect that the intention was to put pressure on the property sector to deleverage. That was clearly in the crosshairs this year as a major policy priority is to get the housing sector under control, level off the leverage there, shift people away from investing in houses to other types of economic activity. And I think they were willing to tolerate some defaults in the sector among the developers as part of that process. And when you step back again in China, what you've seen as part of this whole deleveraging process since 2016 is that you've gone from a system before 2016 where defaults were almost unheard of. And every time a default was threatened, the state would step in. It would make sure that somehow magically the bondholders were compensated. Obviously, it's not always transparent how that happened, but the result of having a system like that is nobody has the incentive to price capital very efficiently, right? There's a lot of moral hazard in the system. And to get from a point where you have that type of a system to a point where the capital markets price risk more efficiently, that transition can be a very dangerous moment in many markets. And so I think China's actually managed it quite well in the sense that they've allowed defaults to happen one sector at a time. So 2016, 2017, it was more the private enterprises. They started to default. They also managed the process in terms of gradually guiding down the recovery rates that people got. So people realize that, yes, there is risk. Yes, you have to start doing more of your credit homework. 
you have to start pricing risk more efficiently. Where they haven't got to, they haven't got to the property developer sector yet. So that's what we're seeing now play out. And they haven't really got to the point where SOEs have or local government financing vehicles have been allowed to default, even though there are some that are clearly financially stretched. And do you think, do we ever get to that stage in your view, the SOEs? You think we do? I think in the SOEs, it's important to make a distinction between central government SOEs, of which there's less than 100, and local government SOEs, of which there's tens of thousands. And I think they're willing to allow defaults at the local government space. In fact, we saw a few, a handful at the start of this year in one of the provinces in China. So I think it's going to be a process of building the expectations in there. But yeah, I do think, especially for the ones that are supposed to be more commercially oriented, we will get there. Yeah, because it's funny, isn't it? You sometimes read, I sometimes read research notes that put numbers on the sort of debt in the in the state-owned enterprises at the provincial levels, and the numbers just sort of blow your mind, don't they? It's just, it's just huge, and it's very easy to create a sort of super bearish scare story out of it. Say, look at the debt that's built up. Look at the level of defaults. But from what you're saying, it's kind of wrong. This, although those numbers might be right, it would be kind of wrong to get too worried about it because you're saying it's a managed process. And if anything, it's actually healthy because they're switching to a more market-oriented sort of way of doing it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think, again, you look at the history of emerging markets, it's rarely the level of debt that causes the problem. It's the speed of the buildup that causes the problem. And to a large extent, they've leveled off the speed of the buildup. They had to turn back to some debt accumulation last year to get through the COVID crisis. But largely, I think they've done a good job of leveling off the speed of the buildup. That doesn't mean it's entirely risk-free, obviously. And I definitely think investors will take losses as part of this process, as well they should, right? If you're funding companies that basically don't have a business plan, and your whole thesis behind the investment is, well, the local government will have my back, you know, that's pretty poor credit homework, I'd say. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you were talking about trends of the year and surprises of the year, one of them was the sort of Evergrande story and the, and the debt buildup. The other one you mentioned was tech regulation. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about, about those surprises and, and your views on where they've got to, but also where they might go next. Yeah. So clearly investors, I don't think we're looking for the tech regulation. And I think there's a couple of things that are going on here that are a bit difficult to unpack. Some of it, I think, is the debates that we're having in Western countries about tech. You have several very large tech companies that have accumulated a lot of power, a lot of corporate power. And there's a legitimate debate about antitrust and whether they should be broken up or should be better regulated. And I think that's the same debate that's going on in China. And that's at least part of what's going on on the tech side in China. You know, I think the other way they look at it from an antitrust point of view is also, are some of these companies abusing their position as platforms? You know, a lot of small businesses have to sell through those platforms. And do they have a fair chance? There's a lot of restrictions in terms of people switching between the platforms. Does that restrain trade, commerce, etc.? So from that point of view, they actually think that by addressing some of these practices that they opening up the platforms will make the economy more competitive to some of the smaller, more innovative businesses. You know, are these big platform companies effectively stifling the innovation of new tech companies that could come and challenge them? It's a very legitimate question. Now, where it gets a bit more complicated and where it bleeds into geopolitics is there's also a national security overlay in terms of data protection. And we have to be very mindful of that. 
And I suspect that's probably what's going on with that certain high profile New York IPO that happened last year and was, or this year and was recently told to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. That really seems to be about the control of data and you know who has access to that data. So again, I wouldn't say it's an entirely, it's all about antitrust. I think there's several different strands going on. There's also a fair amount of regulation of the cultural sphere that's going on. So if you look at the education companies, that's you know another strand. I don't think that was particularly about anti-monopoly. I think that was much more, it was partially about cost of living for middle-class families in China. You think about the effects, the long-term effects of a one-child system, where basically you have only one child, you're going to put a lot of investment into that child, and you're going to pay a lot to give them whatever leg up that you can get. And that includes private tutoring. And that was putting a financial burden on families. And I think also it did two things. It created a sense of inequality in society. So maybe one third of people had the financial means to pay for that tutoring and get their kids a leg up and two thirds didn't and were resentful of it or fearful that they would be left behind. So that was one angle of what was going on with the private tutoring. And the other is just the financial burden on families means that it disincentivizes families from having more kids. And I think that gets to another long-term problem in China, which is demographics. And that's the demographic issue has really come to the fore in the last couple of years with the drop in the birth rate. And they're trying very hard to incentivize families to have more kids. So we've gone from a one-child policy to a three-child policy now. They're trying to start thinking about positive incentives, lowering the cost of living, both in terms of education, healthcare, housing, that would give families more financial means to have kids. Will it work? I'm probably more in the skeptical camp that it'll move the dial a lot. I think what we've seen in country after country around the world, it's very hard to move the dial there with public policy. Yeah. And I think I saw an FT headline in the last couple of days about marriage rates going down as well. So it's actually even before the child phase that things are, are looking slightly tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's hard to get like up-to-the-date demographic data in China, and there's constant revisions to the data because the country's so big. But yeah, it does look like that, that the trend is continuing. The downtrend in the demographics is continuing. And that's pulled forward the population peak. A lot of demographers were talking about the population peak being around 2030. Now they're talking about it in the next couple of years. Right. It's really interesting. Just on the regulatory point again, there's at least two clear stories there that you've you've sort of alluded to. One is the sort of the crackdown on the, the big platforms, the Alibabas and the Ten Cents of the world. The other one is the sort of crackdown on the private education firms, which I guess a lot of people would just see as part of one big issue. But as you've explained, they're kind of quite separate issues, you could argue. But I mean, the state of some of the sell-offs has been pretty steep. I mean, Alibaba, I think, has been cut in half in terms of the price. And that's a big reason why the emerging market indices are looking pretty flattish for the year, way behind where the developed market indices are. And so some people might say, well, how can you invest in these equities? You just never know when the government's going to pop up and just tell your whole sector that you can't make any money. Whereas other people might say, well, it's fairly priced. If the market's pricing that risk, then fine, I suppose, right? So where do you sit on that? Do you think the market tends to get that pricing of that risk roughly right? Or are there big opportunities where it's getting it wrong? Well, that's where I'm thankful I'm a fixed income investor, not an equity investor. And if you look at it from a fixed income point of view, the Alibabas of the world have incredibly strong balance sheets. So from a credit spread point of view, it's less of an immediate issue. But I think you know your point is well made in terms of how do you price that risk? And that's what investors are groping for. 
I think when you go through a phase of uncertainty like this, I think you know prices will overshoot to the downside. That will create some buying opportunities. But once you come out the other side, you're going to have to think a lot harder about what kind of discount you demand for that risk going forward in order to protect yourself. It's one thing to say, you know, to try and understand the policies and what the logic behind the policies is, but the policies were also sprung on investors and we were not really given much time to prepare. You know, at least in sort of Western countries, you will have a process of public debate. You will have you know, very obvious signs that risks are building. Maybe you'll discount those risks, but at least there will be signals there that you need to be aware of. The companies will have lobbying power to try and block those risks or to try and manage the way the regulation gets put into place. But here, you know, this year, they were pretty much sprung on investors. There were some warnings in some of the policy statements at the end of 2020, suggesting that this would be a year when things would happen on the regulatory front, but the warnings were vague. And they certainly didn't point to what happened in the education sector, for instance. So yeah, that will be an ongoing risk that we have to take going forward. A second point I'd like to make on this just very briefly is that some people have seen this, the crackdown on the tech sector as being targeted at foreigners. And I'd say it's not particularly targeted at foreigners. I would say that it's more, they had a set of policy objectives that they wanted to achieve for their own purposes. The fact that it hurt foreigners, well, that's collateral damage. And there, But they're not willing to let the fact that it was going to hurt foreign investors stop them from pursuing the policies that they had in mind for their own purposes. I think we said we'd come back to the point around access. So we did already talk about markets opening up and particularly so on the equity side. You mentioned, Chris, delisting. I wonder if you could talk maybe just a little bit about the dynamics there and what that might mean for future investing. Yeah. So the one area in the capital markets where the integration is going the other way seems to be in the US listings. The US Congress has passed a law basically saying that either China has to comply with US accounting access within three years or the companies will be delisted. This has been a long-running issue. The original requirement was put into place, I believe, in the early 2000s. But for some whatever reason, the U.S. regulators never tried to enforce it before. But now they're getting serious about it, partly, again, due to pressure from Congress. And again, the issue is, can independent outside auditors have access to the full suite of data in China, or is it sufficient for subsidiaries in China? to be able to provide the audits and say that's enough. Second issue is the VIE structure, the variable interest annuity or entity structure done out of the Cayman Islands a lot of times where basically you get a right to the cash flows but not ownership of the company. It's done effectively to enable companies to list outside of China without being in violation of Chinese law on ownership. That's a really interesting point because I only got my head around that relatively recently. The complexity of this, let me get this right. There are some companies who list onshore in China, which is called A shares. There are some who list in Hong Kong, which is called H shares. There are some who list directly in the US and there are some who list in China, but have these shell entities that are either listed in the NASDAQ quite often, something like that, where the owners of those shares in those entities have an economic exposure to the underlying company, but don't actually have the shares. And surprisingly, that's the case for some of the biggest companies in China, like Alibaba and Tencent, Pinduoduo and, and stocks like that. And that has sort of worked, I think. But yeah, it doesn't seem the most, doesn't seem the best. <laughs> you wouldn't design a system like that, I suppose, from the start, would you? 
Yeah. And the VIE structure within China is a legal gray area as well. They have not clarified whether it's technically a legal structure to use. They just haven't enforced against it and said that it's not. So everybody's gone ahead with it. And I think this is where it comes down to you know, being a sophisticated investor who's been long invested in China and understanding the companies and able to meet the managements and being to have some level of comfort with the structure and also understanding the incentives on all sides. You know, the reality is how much does ownership control really matter versus just having the economic interest? When these are fast growing companies, clearly the economic interest was sufficient for a lot of investors. But now the US SEC has decided that this is a risky structure. And certainly I could see how retail investors would get very confused by it in terms of buying shares in the US. And so they've not just put up the demands for transparency but they're signaling that their tolerance for that structure is probably coming to an end. Again, not overnight. And I think the companies will have time to delist from the US and relist in Hong Kong. Three years is a decent amount of time to be able to do this in. But as you said, that is one area of the capital markets where integration is going in reverse. And presumably isn't particularly helpful for sort of geopolitical relationships on that side. So perhaps that could be where we go next in this conversation. Just, I guess, very briefly. So I think you mentioned US-China relations. Was it sort of 2017 had a bit of a, a downturn and feels to me, and maybe there's just been lots of other news stories, but it feels to me that particularly in the Biden era, apart from some noise at the very start of his time, there, there hasn't been a lot, but maybe that's just because there's been a lot of other things going on. What's your sense on that relationship? Yeah, I've been trying to watch the Biden administration's approach to China quite closely, and they've actually been very guarded in the way they talk about China. There hasn't really been a major speech on China policy outlining what the grand vision is. Instead, what we've gotten is a series of ad hoc actions, a fair amount of continuation of policies that were started under the Trump administration. So there was some hope maybe those policies would be relaxed at the margin. I think tone-wise, the Biden administration is trying to balance two sets of demands. So they clearly want to improve the tone of the relationship on China in terms of having communications with the Chinese officials. They're clearly worried about accidents or misunderstandings leading to some kind of escalation. So that's definitely welcome. But they're also balancing a lot of U.S. public pressure, which is turned mistrustful of China. And in particular, the U.S. Congress has become very aggressively anti-China. So, you know, that's a separate set of pressures that they have to balance and no administration wants to be accused of looking weak towards a foreign country. So, as I said, treading that line. On the economic side, one thing they did early on that was somewhat helpful to investors is they clarified the sanctions list that the Trump administration had put on. So in the last year of the Trump administration, they had labeled a set of Chinese companies as military end users and UN investors would be unable to invest in those bonds. And they had pretty expansive definition of the subsidiaries of those companies. So the Biden team came in and narrowed the scope of that ruling, which made quite a few of the bonds investable again, which was helpful, at least for investors. So that's one thing they did. On the trade side, because the tariffs are just such a big issue in the public realm. And I think US public opinion has turned more protectionist over the last decade. It's a lot harder for them to do a major rollback of the tariffs, even though most of the administration economists will admit that economically, the tariffs don't make a lot of sense and aren't really helping the US. And if anything, most of the cost is being put back on the US consumer. But politically, it's very difficult to roll them back. 
So the U.S. has started a process of negotiating with China. Maybe they're looking for a few things they can hold up to as saying, we got this from the Chinese as a commitment to improve their trade practices. They do seem to want to relax some of the tariffs at the margin. Again, not full-scale rollback, but selectively relaxing some of the tariffs, which I think, again, would be a helpful signal. And then do you think for investors that that really matters, the geopolitics of US and China, does that really matter for investors? Yeah, investors are interesting when it comes to geopolitical risk, right? There's a lot of hand-wringing about it. But when you look at it in terms of price action, having looked at Korea for a long time, for instance, a lot of times you would see stories about, you know, North Korea fires off a missile and the Korean one moves for an hour or two. So investors have, you know, a really high tolerance for looking, being aware of the news stories, but also looking through them and looking through to the ultimate incentives of countries that there's a lot of posturing involved. The costs of a conflict or misunderstanding are extremely high. And, you know, most responsible policymakers were not willing to bear those costs and will pull back from the brink. Obviously, we're playing a more dangerous game now. So again, we have to constantly be vigilant about that and look for any signs that when might this time be different, but you can't overreact to every headline. Otherwise, you're just going to be constantly in and out and just inconsistent. Yeah, from what you're saying, it sounds like to be a China analyst, you've got to obviously understand the internal China policies, as well as the structures within the country, as well as the global geopolitics, a lot of different dynamics. But I suppose what I'm taking away is it feels like, from what you're saying, it's probably understanding the internal policies that's maybe the more important bit there than understanding the geopolitics bit. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's largely fair. In terms of the day-to-day, what impacts your investments the most, it's the internal politics in China, the policies that they're putting in place. There are occasions, though, when the geopolitics intrudes, and it does affect, for example, things like sanctions. They can have a very direct impact if you're invested in a company that's sanctioned, for instance. Chris, the final big area and very important area, actually, that we were very keen to explore with you is ESG, so environmental, social and governance issues. Lots of people, lots of headlines with concern over human rights, concern over commitment to the climate transition, whether China is doing enough in in that. Keeping it relatively high level because we're we're quite short on time, I was just, I guess, really interested in how would you advise investors to think about ESG issues? Yeah, I think when it comes to ESG and sovereign ESG, again, it's very complicated. It's not a simple story. And so when you look at China, there's both good, very good and very bad. And China gets an especially big spotlight shown on it because of its size. But the very good is, again, you look at the broad sweep since the 1970s. You could say that for the vast majority of the population, the human rights situation and the standard of living has improved significantly. If you look at it from social development in particular, in terms of education levels, what they've managed to achieve, that's improved tremendously, probably more than any other country in the world has ever managed to do in such a short space of time. In terms of governance, that's always a tricky one. It's not a participatory democracy. You know, we're aware of that. There's many countries around the world that investors invest in that are also not participatory democracies. So one thing I look at is not just the sort of inputs in terms of elections, but more the outputs. And in terms of the outputs is, does the government, does it take public opinion into account in some way? And does it try to respond to complaints or demands from the public? And I think in China, the track record has been pretty good for the vast majority of the population. 
when there are problems, they do respond to them and they treat them seriously. Again, it may not be entirely transparent up front, and I think that's a big difference from other countries. And you have to take that into account in your investments. And then lastly, on the environmental side, no doubt about it, China is the largest emitter of carbon in the world by virtue of its size and by virtue of the fact that it basically modernized or industrialized largely on the back of coal-fired electricity. They know that that's not sustainable. They've set out long-term goals, 2030 to reach peak carbon, 2060 to go carbon neutral. They're working on the detailed implementation of that now. So there are plans and intermediate targets in terms of reducing carbon intensity of the economy on the way to 2030. They're also starting to roll out carbon pricing and a carbon trading platform. So I think that's an important element of putting in a market incentive to wean the system off of carbon. And lastly, they've done a lot in terms of subsidization of solar industry to the point where they've really scaled up solar more than any other country in the world as well. Massive production base for solar and also very rapid adopter of electric vehicles, probably one of the most rapid adopters in the world as well. So bad starting point, but making really strong efforts to correct that on the environmental side. And last point is China's just so big that any attempt to battle global warming will fail without them. They know that, but I think the rest of the world knows that. And that's why the rest of the world has to stay engaged with China on this issue. Yeah, some really interesting stuff there. There's, there's a lot of lot of nuance to it. Just picking back up on the social points, so particularly the sort of the human some of the human rights stuff, particularly around treatment of Uyghur Muslims and those sort of things. There was an interview with Ray Dalio, I think. Sort of a week or so ago, it was a bit criticized. And, and his viewpoint, they obviously launched a few China funds. His viewpoint was sort of, well, it's not my job to know about that, basically, to know things about that, which I suppose it is maybe going back a few years where a lot of investors came from. But what would your perspective be on that now? Is that something that investors should be thinking a bit harder about taking a view on trying to influence? Or is there just no possibility to influence? Or where would you be? It's a hard one, right? Because I think you have to be aware of it. But you also have to be aware, at least at the sovereign level, your ability to influence it is very limited. I think at the corporate level, there's probably more ability to influence. You know, that's a much more active debate about the supply chains and what comes from where and what type of labor was used in the production of it. So there, I think you can be more nuanced or more targeted in the way that you influence. At the sovereign level, it's really difficult. I think that attempts to I don't know, blacklist countries or significantly confront them will probably be counterproductive. I tend to fall more in that camp that trying to engage is better than trying to blacklist. But I will admit that this is just an ongoing debate about which is the better approach. Chris, we've covered so many different areas. I don't even know where to start really in terms of wrapping up. I did wonder though whether you could give us just a one-liner in terms of, you know, looking forward, perhaps what would change your view of China? So you sort of gave us your view at the very start. What sort of factors would change that view? Things that would change my view on China would be signs that the policymaking is losing its edge, right? So as I said, one thing that's really impressed me is both how sort of aware they are of what's going on on the ground, how responsive they are, and if they push things too far, how good they are at adjusting on the fly in a way. So signs that they're losing their edge there. Second thing that's always impressed me is how they incentivize the local governments to develop their economies. It's not just been a top-down system. 
It's really about motivating the local government officials to get investment in, to improve the standard of living, to improve the education system in their provinces. And that's worked brilliantly. And so any sign that that is kind of being undermined and losing its traction would be a real negative to me. That's really interesting. Yeah, because as Mary says, we've covered a huge amount of grounds. It's been a really good conversation. As we start to wrap up, what's just one thing you'd like to leave listeners with to take away from, from the whole conversation? It's a really fascinating country, but it's a huge country and it's very multifaceted. And it's easy to try and paint it in sort of black and white terms, but actually that really sells it short. Fantastic. And Chris, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing more generally? That's a good question. So I've had to think hard about this. I've been working here for now 13, 14 years as an investor. I think one thing that really that you have to learn is that you're not going to be right 100% of the time, not even close to 100% of the time. And how to have the humility or the consciousness that you're going to be wrong, you're going to make mistakes, but still be able to take a clear view and back that view you know, with money effectively. Mm, that's a really nice takeaway. Yeah, thanks for that. And finally then, Chris, any recommendations, good books, podcasts that you like, let the listeners know about? Well, if it comes to China, there's one podcast in particular that I like, which is called Seneca. They do long form interviews about an hour plus with various experts on China, whether it's current policymakers, former policymakers, academics, other people who've been involved in China. There's a few others I like on the economic side as well that are kind of a bit more fun. So Planet Money from National Public Radio in the US is kind of is a good one. In terms of books, I love reading history. So I read a ton of history. Have read a lot, you know, well beyond China. But one I read recently that was quite interesting was A History of the Opium War by Stephen Platt. Really goes into a lot of detail and I think builds a sort of a much more fuller sense of what was going on at the time than sort of the standard like two-line version of history that we tend to get. That is interesting. Yeah, a bit of history reading. That's I don't actually get history recommendations that often. So that's a lovely thought. Well, Chris, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Do join us next week for the last episode before Christmas. But in the meantime, take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.